as long as I can come across the finish line in whatever chosen distance and have raced them all, knowing that I couldn't possibly have run one iota faster. That to me, that's the that's satisfying, you know. Um, I like being in that position. I like being under the pressure. I like finding myself in a, in a, a state of, uh, of uncomfortability. I, I like being in that space. And then I like really engaging in the self-talk. So for me, that's, that's, uh, that's my drug. Your, your potential is not comfortable. <laughs> so I, I dig exploring that. I'm my own little guinea pig. That's Mike Finelli, and this is episode 98 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and every week on this show, I sit down with athletes, coaches, and personalities in the sport of running for long-form conversations that will educate you, inspire you, or impact you in some way. My guest this week is Mike Finelli. Mike has worn a lot of different hats in the sport of track and field over the past 50 years. He's a solid athlete with a 225 marathon personal best and over 110,000 lifetime miles on his legs. He's a great coach, having guided 14 U.S. Olympic trials qualifiers, one national champion, and three times he served as head coach of a U.S. national team. He's worked in marketing at major shoe companies. He's represented athletes as an agent. He served as an elite athlete coordinator for different races, and he's even been a color commentator for a number of events. But most impressive, to me at least, is that Mike is one of the biggest track nerds and historians the sport has ever known. He calls himself a cultural storyteller of the sport, and every day on his Facebook page, he posts a snippet of track and field related history or trivia that he dug up analog style from a massive archive that he keeps in his garage that will totally blow your mind. This was a conversation about the sport the two of us both love so much, how juvenile delinquency got Mike to start running as a young kid, competition as a means of exploring your potential, the importance of putting yourself in uncomfortable situations, and a lot more. This was a short conversation because Mike needed to get to a meeting, so I will definitely bring him back to geek out with me and tell more stories. But right now, let's dive right into it with Mike Finelli. I'm thrilled to have you here, Mike Finelli. I don't meet many track dorks who are as big of a running fan as, as I am, but you you put me to shame. Uh, so it's an honor here to be sitting with you, talking about your life, talking about running, uh, but welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks an awful lot. I'm, I'm flattered and honored to be here. I want to start by talking about miles, because you've run a lot of them in your lifetime. What is the odometer at currently? So, <laughs> um, don't try this at home. 111,400 and something as of this week. And when did that start ticking? So I started my first training log and that's when it, it starts. You know, I ran prior to that, but not, not a lot. Uh, 14 years old, uh, October of 1970, cross country season, Philadelphia PA. Started my first training log in October of 1970. So uh, coming up on 50 years. And you've kept a log ever since? Yeah, I started that log uh, at that time and I've kept logs every single year ever since that. And they're all handwritten. What 
or who encouraged you to start a training log that early in life? You know, I don't actually recall, but um, I, would, I, I was a reader. <clears throat> I read anything and everything I could get my hands on about the sport. And uh, like the book that we just uh, shared, the Run, Run, Run book, you know, that, that's, it's, it's people's, uh, that book is essentially uh, the training logs of a bunch of different athletes. So I said, well, you know, got to keep a log. And, and I learned early on that the log is so critical um, in that you want to have a point of reference. Um, in fact, I've, I've been asked by like high school parents about how their kid can get better. And the first thing I say is, do they keep a training log? And they, they said, no, I mean, what's the one thing that they can do to get better? And I said, keep a training log because it's your point of reference. It gives you uh, a lot of information from which to, to pull. Uh, you see what you did right when you were at your peak and, and when, uh, when things didn't go so well and when things got, you were injured. Plus it keeps you honest, you know, so... I love the training lab for that purpose. Is there anything magical about having it being handwritten? You know, um, I think that when you, when you handwrite it, you, you may be more prone to, you know, add more emphasis and write more detail. And, you know, so over and above being just a training log, you know, I can look at my, my logs and, and, you know, I can actually see how my life unfolded over this last half century, frankly, you know, on a variety of levels. Do you buy a training log or do you just get a plain notebook and customize it for yourself? I'd love to dig into the specifics of it a little bit. <laughs> my very first uh, training log is one of those old marble uh, colored, you know, was, I think they called it a marble composition book. And I've always just kept very informal uh, books, never a train, never bought a training log in my life. Uh, most of the last 20 or so years have just been uh, legal pads, yellow legal pads. Yeah, I have a lot of them. <laughs> I interviewed Frank Gagliano back in May of Gags, last year. One of my favorite conversations that I've had for this podcast, and even, I mean, beyond this podcast, it's just a great conversation, period. And he writes all of his training for his athletes since, or he has written all of his training for his athletes since 1982 on a yellow legal pad. And we went out to his garage afterward and took a peek at them. They're just stacks on stacks on stacks. <laughs> and he can go back and tell you exactly, you know, what any of his athletes from the time that he was at Georgetown uh, and when he was with Oregon Track Club and beyond have done over the last 37 years, yeah, 38 brilliant years. brilliant man. Maybe the most brilliant man in the history of the sport as it relates to middle distance coaching. Why do you say that? Uh, if you just look at his, his progression, you know, look at his progression from being a high school coach in North Jersey, man, what he produced at uh, Manhattan College prior to Georgetown, uh, the number of athletes that he's uh, he's you know, brought to their peaks. Um, a lot of those athletes are still, uh, today they are coaching guys like John Troutman and that group. Uh, so he's just, you know, he's got a legacy in the sport. He's got a personality. And so it was more, I think his athletes really responded to him. Not only did he understand uh, the sports in terms of, uh, you know, dollars and cents, numbers and metrics, he understood it from a, a personal stance and, and was really good at, um, uh, eliciting the best out of athletes. That's what really jumped out at me. And he said his words, my athletes are my family. He's like, my family is really important to me. That's the most important thing. But my athletes are my second family and they come right after that. And you can see it just in the way that he talks about them. And when he's looking back at old pictures and going through these logs, it's like, yeah, he's very proud of what they've achieved as athletes, but he has also been able to develop them as people. And I think that's what's really impressive about Gags. Well, it's, it's really cool that you got some of that magic dust because it's special. 
Let's go back to the beginnings of your running career. What was your introduction to the sport? Uh, juvenile delinquency. <laughs> I grew up in the Philadelphia area and, uh, you know, uh, it was only, you know, I, was, I was a very small guy, you know, uh, and uh, so football didn't work for me, although I loved the sport. Uh, my hand-eye coordination sucked. I uh, couldn't dunk a ball. And, you know, I was just, uh, but uh, I would find that through juvenile delinquency that I could run because when I had to run, and it was largely out of fear of, uh, you know, my father finding out that I did whatever it was, the, the, the mischief that we got into. Nicholas Pasquale Finelli was, uh, had a, a heavy hand. And so uh, when it was time to run, I ran and I was always, we don't generally have a designated place where we were going to run to and meet and, you know, gather back up after whatever crime we, uh, we uh, pulled off. And uh, I would always be the, I would, I got to the point where I'd be the last guy to leave and I'd be the first guy to get there. And I'd say, you know, I like this. And, 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 you know, so we were, exp- we were actually exposed to track and field as kids, even though we didn't get to do it. We didn't have a team. We didn't have a CYO team or any of that. Uh, we were exposed to it a lot. I mean, you got your Sports Illustrated arrived at once a week, every week, and uh, you know a lot of times it would have a track guy on it, and or we'd watch Wide World of Sports. And this is I'm talking, you know, specifically around 1967. And in 1967, the light bulb went off, and I said, Yeah, I am going to be a sprinter. I am going to be Tommy Smith. And uh, so, so that that was the pursuit. And my dad was a became a jogger. He'd wear one of those great big heavy 100% cotton champion sweats, uh, sweatshirts and sweatpants and go to the local high school track and he would jog an entire mile and every once in a while I'd go up with him and I'd make it all the way around the track one time, all out, out leaning Tommy Smith every single time, you know. And uh, So I just I had it in my blood and it was funny because I was only like a sixth grader and I was saying, like, yeah, as soon as I get to high school, I'm running track. Uh, shortly thereafter, my buddy, my best buddy, his brother got into West Point. And so that summer before he went, attended West Point, uh, uh, coerced me into coming out and, uh, helping get him, get him into shape. So we ran something called cross country, which I had never heard of. I'm a, I'm a 13 year old boy now. And so the next summer, the next uh, fall, when I turned 14, I was a freshman in high school, day one, I signed up for that thing called cross country and, you know been doing it ever since what oh, there's so much there that that i want to dig into the, the first part being what you said about the exposure of track and field at the time you could pick up sports illustrated i mean heck i mean a lot of people aren't picking up magazines period anymore but you would have like jim ryan on the cover of sports illustrated these heroes that you would be intrigued by and want to follow and like understand what it is they were up to and i think that you know, hurts a sport a lot these days. It's just like a, a sign of the times, really. You know, back then, you've got track and field. It's it's taken seriously. It's covered by mainstream media. And the effect of that is a kid like you who's devouring this stuff week in and week out, because you're presented with these people who can be your heroes, you know, you, you want to be like them. You want to be like Tommy Smith to instead him. of Absolutely. like now, I mean, nothing LeBron. against basketball. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly the, <laughs> yeah. the name I was going to go to. Yeah. You see LeBron James, it's like people want to be LeBron James yeah. and that, and that's great. But yeah. I think track and field has suffered as a result of that. Yeah. Well, back then, you know, track and field wasn't an every four year deal. It was an, it was an all round deal. And in fact, the very first big track meet I went to was uh, in 1969. And uh, it was so exciting, you know, it was like, Wow, it was a three-ring circus, right? And it was it was entertainment, it was sport, it had everything. So, 
Yeah, that's how I got into it. Take me back to that first cross-country practice. What were your initial impressions? <laughs> uh, I had my high black Chuck Taylor All-Stars. Growing up in Philly, they had to be black. You know, I know Boston, where you were from, right? The Boston area, they were white, right? You had to have white. Is that right? Or? No, it actually, same as in Philadelphia. Ah. I mean, this is way before my time. Yeah. I wasn't born until 1982. Yeah. But the Boston Celtics ah, wore yeah. black shoes black. for the longest time. And I remember, I can't remember exactly when that changed, but I remember noticing that it changed at one point. And I was like, this is sacrilege. The yeah. Celtics need to be wearing black shoes. They've always worn black shoes. Well, I'll tell you, you know, in, in our hood, you, you you better wear the black ones. If you wore the white ones, you were going to get beat up. So I had my high black uh, Chuck Taylor All-Stars and... Uh, laced up in a whole full cotton sweatsuit, you know, with McDevitt High School on it. We went out. Our very first workout was five miles out on the streets of Philly, out past Temple Stadium, Temple University Stadium. And then uh, three miles in, the guys, the older guys started doing something called ins and outs, which I, I what's ins and outs? So sprint to one uh, uh, light post and then, you know, jog to the next into the next, you know, uh, light post, blah, 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 blah. At any rate, you know, I made it. I survived. Uh, most of the freshmen that did come out early on did not make it through the entire season. Uh, I had the good fortune of being on a very, very good team. Our varsity team won the Philadelphia uh, uh, Catholic League championships, and then we got to compete and win the city championships that year, the Philadelphia City Championships. So I was, I was, I was totally hooked, man. This is cool. Were you seeking out literature at that time in the form of magazines, books? Is that when this fascination, obsession even with training logs, stories really started to manifest itself? Yeah, you know, it's the, the cool thing is my older brother uh, was already a runner. In fact, he won the Philadelphia City title at 880 yards, uh, high school title in 1968. So I'm a couple years behind that and he had a handful of books. And then, uh, so I mean, I just read everything I get my hands on. And as a freshman in high school, in between seasons and on Sundays, I'd go to these road races and I'd be exposed to a lot of these other, uh, you know, older uh, athletes, post-collegiate athletes and that sort of thing. Um, and so I just got really interested in finding out everything we could do. It was clear to me that I didn't have good coaching. I knew that I didn't have good coaching. So I was just, you know, it's kind of like what Scoop Nisker says. If you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. So... I took it upon myself. To, I wanted to learn what it is that I should be doing. Uh, my 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 high school coach. He was a he was a postman, you know, and he had run in high school. And I guess you know he was he was our coach, but he didn't really know anything about the sport. He certainly didn't know anything about the science of the sport. And I wanted to find out what it is. What, what what's it going to take to become a better runner? So I just did started doing research as as a fourteen year old. I read a lot of stuff. Man, a lot of this sounds oh so familiar to me. Aside from the fact that we're both from the East Coast and have the initials MF, that's how my high school career started. I mean, I was playing basketball and I started running cross country to keep in shape for basketball, but I didn't have a great coach. It was the janitor at our high school. And I remember we would race twice a week and in between we'd, we'd either not run or we'd run like two to three miles max. And I was like, this, this can't be like how people train. And I remember going into the library at our school at the time because the, the internet wasn't what it was Today, there was some stuff on the internet, and I still have a lot of that stuff printed out, like training schedules of Kenyans like Daniel Komen and Bob Kennedy and like Sebastian Cohen, like whatever I could find. But I remember finding like they were like the Sports Illustrated Guide to Track and Field from like 1961 that had probably been sitting on the bookshelf in By the school. Jim Dunaway. <laughs> you would know that, of He's course. A, he was a pal of mine. I have it here in, uh, in my closet. But 
you know, it's like that, that's exactly what I did. I would try to find as much information as I can. And I mean, here we are, you know, 24 years later in my case, and it has not stopped. So I, I'm just like sitting here, like nodding my head. I'm like, this sounds really, really familiar to me. You ran your first marathon pretty early on in life though. Oh yeah. You know, um, I was an adventurous kid, you know, I, I truly very adventurous kid. And so at age 15 as a sophomore in 1971, uh, middle of the season, middle of the track season. I told you I didn't have coaching. Uh, on Sunday, I, I found out that they were having the 1971, the Pan Am Games Eastern Regional Trials Marathon. And the cool thing, one of the things I loved about the sport was, you know, you, you know, you, you could you know, sign up and you could run in these races with the very best guys. Some of them had been in the Olympic Games. Some of them were like college stars or, you know, and it's, you know, you don't, you don't get to shoot hoops with staff, right? You know? But in running, you got to you know got to play with the big boys. It was pretty cool. So I I, I uh, signed up and you know uh, for the I think the furthest I had ever run at that time, which was actually quite long, was 17 miles. Okay. And so the the course was the th- uh, the old standard three lap course in, in Philadelphia, starting at Boathouse Row, going up around the Art Museum, out along the Kelly Drive, along the uh, the Schuylkill River, turn around, come back. You'd do it three times. Uh, I of course you know in 1971 as a 15 year old went out way over my head and uh about nine miles in i was already you know shuffling uh and it was kind of funny because the cool thing one of the neat things that happened to me at that time is that uh right around nine uh, a guy came sidling up alongside me from behind and uh he was an ancient man he was uh uh wearing a new york pioneers singlet and uh, he pulled up alongside me and started giving me advice, unsolicited advice, just coaching me and encouraging me uh, and, and ran with me for a little bit and just really inspired the heck out of me. That man was Ted Corbett. And, uh, you know, uh, older runners be, kind of became, you know, uh, a very uh, interesting to me. I said, wow, these guys are really cool. I hope when I get to be 40 that I can still run, you know, and... Uh, so I was inspired by that. So I did not finish that marathon. I did, I did manage to finish it uh, the following year at age 16. So my first completed marathon was 1972, and that was the Philadelphia Marathon in a blistering time of three hours and 36 minutes. <laughs> what did you learn from those first two marathons? Start slow. <laughs> no, uh, you know that, 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 that you can't take it lightly, but and, and you have to actually do the work. You can't just fake your way through the marathon. Um, and um, but there's room for a lot of improvement in that. And uh, if you um, you know if you pencil out a, you know the an optimal schedule of uh, uh, of training that you know you can really you know, get somewhere. And and it was really exciting to finish a marathon. It was not that many people ran marathons. It was amazing to have accomplished that. And so, you know, in the, the longer run, I think that, well, no pun intended, uh, the thing that I learned is about human potential and about how we uh, as human beings don't often tap into our human potential, whether it be emotionally or physically. And in this case, you know, it seems so gargantuan uh, uh, an undertaking at that time. And, uh, you know, so... Pursuing those sorts of things became really fascinating to me. The feeling of uh, finishing that first marathon at age 16 was, you know, uh, overwhelmingly uh, uh, influential in my life. So in your teens, were you, 
when you're going to these races, are you going up to the winners and top runners afterwards saying, hey, I'm Mike Finelli. I'm a big fan of the sport. What can you teach me? Were you a little too shy to do that? I'd love to just it, it, dig it into so that. It was so casual. You know, it was just all so black and white, you know? I mean, like all the old photos, you know? It's just, it was uh, very down to earth. It was just, you know, a bunch of guys on a Sunday morning paid 50 cents. And, you know, uh, and when, when you got done, uh, there was a, a table full of uh, prizes, and you know, if you were first place, you got to pick the the first thing off the table. If you were second place, you, and you know, sometimes I'd get a little something, and you know, you're just kind of ha- hanging out, you know, on a cold winter's morning, and uh, at Boathouse Row uh, in in Philly, and uh, you know, the guys were there would be so um, Moses Mayfield and Herb Lorenz and Tom Donnelly. So Tom Donnelly, as it turned out, was the coach at uh, my rival high school and a really good coach, and they had great teams. And so I befriended him at those road races. And although he wasn't my coach, he was uh, very willing to share with me you know, when I'd ask him questions about stuff. And uh, so I had some guidance uh, you know, from afar. Uh, the guy that put on the road races uh, back then uh, it became my mentor very early on. And his name was Browning Ross. And Browning Ross, you may know, was the founder of the Roadrunners Club of America. He had a magazine called Long Distance Log. Uh, he coached. Uh, he had been an Olympian uh, in 1952. He was an Olympian, uh, steeplechase, uh, with Horace Ashenfelder. He was one of uh, uh, Villanova University's first distance running stars. And so he really encouraged me. He kind of, if it wasn't for Browning Ross, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here today. I would, I would have taken a different path in my life. But uh, he what really ways did he encourage me. you and inspire you? Well, he inspired me, um, you know, just to encourage me to kind of keep going. And you know, he would, you know, I would get some some uh, accolades and some props, you know, like a good a bunch of attaboys from, you know, just for finishing stuff because, you know, most of the other high school kids obviously weren't going out to the road races on on Saturday. You know, they're they're watching Road Runner at home. You know, eating you know pop tarts and. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, and then not only would he put on the races, but he would run in the races and he was in his forties and, you know, he would be way up there. So I was just very inspired by all that. So it was just, just the entire, uh, you know, ambiance of the, of the sport at that time. And, and uh, his, his encouragement throughout my high school years, uh, you know, really kind of helped keep me, keep me going, you know, got, got some momentum going, right? Did you stay in touch with Ted Corbett after that first marathon? I didn't actually stay in touch with him, but my our cr- paths crossed quite a bit. You know, I worked in the business for a bunch of years. You know, I worked in a bar- variety of facets of the business. And so I would see him at events and, and that sort of a thing. And any time I did, I would go out of my way to, uh, to, to have a quick chat with him and, you know, remind him of that event and to thank him for that. It was really important to me. Uh, it was a kind of a seminal moment, you know, and looking back on it, you know, um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. As a kid, I caddied. I, I was a caddy at the local golf course. That's how I made a couple of bucks to be able to afford my uh, Adidas running shoes, my Adidas Viennas and Adidas Roams. And uh, the, the, the professional tour passed through Philadelphia uh, at the IBB Golf Classic every year. And I got to actually, uh, you know, that's where I happened to, to caddy. And one day at the... Uh, the caddy master said that, you know, there's, there's, you know, does somebody want to shag balls? And that's like the, the lowest thing you can do is go out and shag balls on the shag course, you know? And I said, you know, just to win favor with the caddy master, I raised my hand and said, yeah, I'll go do it. Well, I got up there and it turns out there was two guys on the shag field. It was Jack Nicholas and I got Billy Casper. 
And, you know, I thought that was pretty cool at the time. But now, you know, 50 years later, I think it, wow, how cool is that to to have had that interaction with such an iconic thing? And that's how I feel about Ted Corbett. It was so, you know, such a, you know, uh, a seminal moment for a young man. And, you know, resonates with me to this very day. Hey, let's take a quick break to thank New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Growing up in Massachusetts and competing for New Balance Boston, which is now called Battle Road Track Club before moving to California, this is a brand I grew up around and whose products I've used consistently over the years. I've been running in the Fresh Foam 1080 V10 for the past several weeks, and it's quickly become one of the workhorses in my shoe stable. In fact, it was the only running shoe I took with me two weeks ago when I flew home to Massachusetts for my Nana's funeral. The booty upper and ultra heel design helps it fit like a glove, and the new Fresh Foam X midsole provides the right blend of cushioning and responsiveness to make my daily miles and long runs comfortable and enjoyable. This shoe provides plenty of protection without feeling bulky or compromising on flexibility and performance, and you can learn more about it at newbalance.com or at the link in this episode's show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Final Surge. I've been using Final Surge for the past two and a half years to run the coaching side of my business, as well as plan my own training, and I really can't say how much of a game changer it's been for me and my athletes. The coaching tools have made planning and delivering training easy and seamless. Communication is completely streamlined into one easy-to-navigate portal, and it's made my workflow far more efficient and effective. Final Surge syncs easily with a number of GPS watches and various other tracking platforms to import all the data you'd ever need to analyze. The mobile app is incredible and it makes on-the-go check-ins and communication easy and seamless. I couldn't do what I do without Final Surge and I can't recommend it enough to other coaches regardless of the level that you're working with. Final Surge is cost-effective for coaches, and athlete accounts are 100% free. It's great for coaches of all types and levels, whether you coach individual athletes, high school and college teams, or even a club. Athletes can find training plans from a number of world-class coaches, including my own, and coaches, you can get a 10% discount on your first purchase of a coaching account using the coupon code MORNINGSHAKEOUT. That's all caps, no the, all one word, morning shakeout, when you check out at finalsurge.com. Go to finalsurge.com slash morning shakeout to purchase a training plan written by yours truly, to find information about coaching packages, or to check out a 14-day coaching trial. My thanks to New Balance and Final Surge for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Let's fast forward a couple of years while you're still in high school. How are you thinking about running as you were approaching graduation? Were you thinking about running in college? Was that even a possibility? Did you know that running was something you wanted to stick with, even though you had no idea where you were going to take it? Well, I heard there was something called scholarships, and that really attracted, I was very attracted to that. Unfortunately, I, I didn't, um, I wasn't as diligent about my schoolwork as I was about my running. So uh, I, uh, I ended up getting a uh, some form of a combination academic athletic scholarship to Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg, Maryland, uh, which has quite a quite a legacy in the sport. It's a D2 school. My dream was to go to Villanova, of course, because Philadelphia main line, and I watched those guys, but uh, that didn't happen. So uh, yes, the, the answer to your question, the long answer to your question is, yeah, I very, very much wanted to run collegiately. And were you... Did you end up running collegiately? Yeah, you know, I only ran one season at Mount St. Mary's, and I took made different life choices. I ended up in the United States Marine Corps, and then when I immediately upon uh, getting out, I used my GI Bill to go back to school. And by that point in time, I was out here in California, and so I went to City College of San Francisco, where I had a very good 
uh, two years of, of track and cross country. And then uh, from there, uh, I, uh, I went to San Francisco State University with whom I still have a very close relationship and ran track and cross country there. Did you run while you were in the Marine Corps? Uh, always ran, yeah. So yeah. you never stopped? No, I've never stopped. It, the, the, this is my 50th consecutive year of competition. I've not missed a single year of competition. So I and never had a, a break, not a long break, not a long enough break to not to have missed a year of competition. Do you yeah. think that's healthy? Hell yeah. <laughs> Ask my wife. Uh, no. Um, yeah, I think if it's, if it's, you know, it, it, for, for somebody like me, I mean, it defines me, right? You know, and, and the beauty of what I love about the competition is that, you know, the, 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 the nicest thing, one of the coolest things about our sport is it, it is black and white and quantifiable. It is measurable in time and in distance. So you always know where you are. You always know what every single performance is, is, is worth, the value of it. Uh, so it gives you a sense of space and place, you know, at that moment in time. So, yeah, um, for me, you know, some people like to train. Some people like to compete. Some people like to do both. If, if I could do just compete, if I could race every single day, oh, I'd, I'm that guy. I'd be on the line every single I love to compete. Love it. Love it. When did you first realize you had such a competitive streak? Oh, no, I don't know. You know, I guess once you, you know, once you get a taste of winning, you know, that's, that, that's a good, that uh, that's it. a good, good, good way to kind of, you know, fire that up. Yeah. Has your relationship with competition evolved over the last 50 years? Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> clearly I don't win anymore. I might win a little age group thing, but you know, um, you know, um, yeah, I just, as long as I can come across the finish line in whatever chosen distance and embraced them all, uh, come across knowing that I couldn't possibly have run one iota faster, you know? So that, that, that to me, that's the, that's satisfying, you know? Um, I like being in that position. I like being under the pressure. Uh, I like finding myself in a, in a, a state of, uh, of uncomfortability. I, I like being in that space. And then I like really um, engaging in the self-talk. So for me, that's, 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 uh, that's my drug. What is it about being in that uncomfortable space that you enjoy? You know, we talked a, a moment ago about, you know, people not tapping into their potential physically and emotionally. And I think that that's a way to get in touch with the, uh, your potential. And whatever your maximum potential is on that given uh, day. And uh, so, um, you know, your, your potential is not comfortable. <laughs> so I, I, I dig exploring that. I'm my own little guinea pig. Let's go back in time to when you got out of the Marine Corps and came to San Francisco. You've been in this general vicinity now since then, I believe. Yeah, what was the attraction to the West Coast? You know, it's funny because when I was a kid, I always wanted to be, you know, one of those guys that got to train in Santa Barbara, California, right? You know, uh, you know uh, the whole East Coast thing, Beach Boys, uh, Santa Barbara, that's where Club West was. That's where Jim Ryan trained. That's where Jim, you know, Bob Toomey. Built to me, uh, train all those guys. So I wanted to do that, and so um, you know, California was was uh, the, the place you got to be. So you just knew at some point you were going to end up there. Oh, absolutely, no, no doubt. Yeah. What is your relationship with competition at this time? I imagine you're in your mid twenties, probably just out of the Marine Corps. How are you thinking about your own life as a competitive athlete? You know, I, I you know, uh, 
what what all of us guys did in in you know in the seventies. You know, not just me. We, you know, we were real mileage focused, we marathon focused. You know, it probably isn't the best thing for for me uh, uh, for longevity in the career, but we were marathon focused and. The, the key ambition for many, most of us, was to try to qualify for the Olympic trials in the marathon. So that was my ambition. What year was it, 76? Uh, no, the 80, 80 trials and, and 84. For, personally, for me, it was more uh, focusing on the 80 and 84 trials. What were the qualifying standards at the you time? Know, I think I recall in, at 223, that might have been the standard in, in 80. And then it went to, I believe it went to 220. Um, it's a long time ago. So yeah, um, uh, in '80, uh, I had run, um, I had run 2:26 on a really hard course, and I was extraordinarily fit. And then uh, going up to, to Eugene to run the Nike OTC marathon to try to make do get a qualifier. And uh, back then we did something called depletion runs, and that's that was the initial thing that you did prior to carbohydrate loading. So you did a long run. And you, then you did not eat carbohydrates for like three days. And you just ate proteins, and then you went on and you know loaded with with carbohydrates. So our, my depletion run was the day after a 10k PR. I was ready to roll. The following week, I was doing Nike OTC marathon. I was up on Mount Tamalpais, hit a root, blew out all the ligaments in my left ankle. So that was the uh, end of my uh, my uh, uh, capacity for the 80 trials. And then 84 trials, uh, you know, just it just didn't really come together. Um, there's a there's a you know a big big stretch between uh, uh, two you know my my PR which is 225 and 220. So, were you coaching yourself at the time? Were you part of a group here in the Bay Area? Yeah. Um, so again, uh, you know, um, uh, <laughs> put together a team. You know, uh, myself and uh, and one other guy. Put together, we started. We founded the Greater San Francisco Track Club, and uh, we attracted a pretty, pretty strong squad. Uh, we won the the National Road Runners Club of America Marathon Championships one year. I think I was the third guy. We had a handful of you know a couple of guys on, on Sunday mornings. Uh, back then, on Sunday mornings, starting in the the, the uh, parking lot, the College of Marin, we'd have between you know fifteen and twenty five guys, and at least ten of them were sub two twenty guys, and we'd go out and. Inevitably, somebody was good, feeling good, so the pace always got pushed. You know, it was generally something like Saturday you do the all-comers meet over at Cal Berkeley. Sunday you go out and you do the long run. So uh, we had a team called Greater San Francisco Track Club, and we, you know, were pretty good. So uh, yeah, and, and by then I knew a little bit more about the sport, but we didn't really have the understanding and the knowledge of exercise physiology and its practical application to the sport. That wasn't, you know, that was not as mainstream at that time. The other thing we didn't have is we didn't have, you know, uh, the ergogenic aids. We didn't have glucose polymer drinks and that sort of thing. So it was inevitable that you were going to crash. It was just a function of when. That was one of the reasons why we did uh, carbohydrate loading to try to extend you know, how long your glycogen carrying capacity would last. Uh, so it was different then. It was really kind of very, you know, blue collar. We, we were, you know, I did not really know as much about exercise physiology as I do today. That's for sure. But, um, we just went out and ran as much as you could and as hard as you could. And my ambition was 105 miles every week. That was my number. 15 a day. That's it. Exactly. Bingo. That's exactly what it is. I did the same damn thing. 
105. Oh, fire. No, 105. No. People say, 105? Why 105? Well, yes, exactly. 15 miles a day. That was just what it did, yeah. Would so. you allow yourself one of those to be 20 and, and then there was a oh, 10 yeah, to balance yeah. it, was, it, it out? Because that's how I did That's how yeah. I did mine when yeah, I was in my Yeah, it was young, basically, you know, five days, days of, you know, whatever, you know, 15. And then, uh, you know, you do doubles. Monday through Friday, you did doubles. Saturday, 10, you competed. Sunday, you ran long. So, and it was just like week in, week out. So, yeah. What's interesting to me is that none of you were professional athletes. You're all just doing this because you love to do it. How important was that team atmosphere that you created and having a sense of community? Yeah, you know, I just think that, you know, uh, misery loves company, basically. You know, it's good, you know, that you, if you didn't have to, you know, get out and suffer alone. Um, and, you know, the camaraderie of the sport is one of the things that attracts me to the sport. And so I've made, you know, all of my very best uh, lifelong friends come from the sport. Yeah, so that was the cool, that was a really cool thing about it. When did you get into coaching? So I really started coaching in about 1984, thereabouts. I coached for about 17 years. Um, coached a lot of individual athletes, and I got the opportunity to coach the uh, Impala Racing Team in San Francisco uh, quite a bit for a number of years. Um, I was fortunate enough to, to have some, some coaching success. Uh, yeah. Is that something you knew you always wanted to do? No, actually, I didn't. You know, it's just one of those things, you know, you're, you know, I, I, once I started to understand some facets of exercise physiology and my own career was really done by then, you know, I mean, I was running and competing, but, you know, the, my best years were done. Uh, it was just nice to give something back to the sport, you know, and uh, help other people find their, uh, their joy of sport uh, that I've had. What were you doing professionally at the time? Uh, you know, so most of that time I did some facet of sports marketing, whether it was uh, managing uh, running stores or working for athletic footwear companies. I spent a number of years in the marketing department at Reebok working with runners. Uh, I was an agent for athletes. So I got to represent some, some very, very, very fine athletes. Uh, I did uh, radio and TV announcing. I did uh, uh, recruiting for big events. Uh, I wore a lot of hats. I was, was the... Uh, the the chairman of USA Cross Country. Uh, I just wore a lot of different hats, but mo mostly uh, working in the athletic footwear industry and mostly working with athletes, Olympic caliber athletes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Did you know that you wanted to have a career in the running industry or did you just sort of fall into it because that's what your interests were? No, absolutely, positively. I was uh, very focused in my uh, studies. Uh, I studied uh, specifically marketing. Uh, with an emphasis on sports marketing and advertising and, and that sort of thing uh, with the entire end. And every time we had to do a, a project, my project was you know, sports marketing related. And uh, my true ambition was to get to work for an athletic footwear company. And my number one ambition in the, that would be to get to work, be the promotional guy that worked with the athletes. Um, back then, there were only a couple of those positions available. And I fortunately got uh, found my way into into one of those positions, which is just extraordinary. It's the power of belief and visualization. Back to the coaching side of things, did you know early on that that was something you wanted to get into, or did you sort of fall into it because folks asked you to help them out because they knew that you had this insatiable appetite to learn and, and you knew the sport and you knew training uh, and could apply it to their programs? Yeah, you know, at the time, you know, I totally kind of I fell into it and, you know, at a, at a, you know, doing it very loosely. And then I got the opportunity to do it on a much more structured uh, capacity. Uh, and then, um, you know, through some successes, I had the, uh, uh, the genuine, uh, 
delight to be um, assigned as a head coach of a U.S. team a couple of times. It took a couple of teams to compete in Japan and Korea. When did you stop coaching? Uh, you know, my my current profession, it's my second profession, um, is, you know, so time consuming that uh, I didn't feel if I couldn't give 110% to an athlete, that it didn't make sense for me. I couldn't, I, I'm not willing to uh, work with an athlete, you know, with only, you know, 45% of my heart into it. So um, it, it made sense for me to, to, to step away from it, um, you know, for a period of time. Um, as that career is coming to a conclusion, my ambition is to, to coach again, but to, rather than coach the post-collegiate athlete, you know, the glitzy fun side of the sport, uh, and much more at a grassroots level, my ambition is to coach at a high school level. Um, and even that isn't so much about, you know, um, trying to have some kind of a great team that wins championships as much as it is, it's an opportunity uh, to um, help young athletes make good decisions going forward, uh, decisions that will you know, impact their, their, their lives into perpetuity. I think you also have an awesome opportunity there to foster love of the sport because you radiate it. Um, and I think just being around you, you know, coach is someone who is very impressionable upon a young boy or girl. To be able to foster that when they're in their teen years could be something they keep with them for the rest of their lives like it has been for you and me. Well, I think that, uh, you know, we have to foster uh, some new track nerds. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the history of our sport yeah, is <clears throat> easily lost. <clears throat> Not everything about the sport is, is available out there, you know, in the type of capacity that, uh, you know, kids today would uh, pursue it. So, uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, the history of the sport is uh, a really, really uh, important and uh, passion uh, in, in my life and in my world. We've only got a little bit more time here. I'd love to dig into the track nerd side of things. You have been called a historian of the sport, and I think that's really accurate. For those listening to this who don't follow you on Facebook, aren't friends with you on Facebook, like every day you're posting some snippet of track and field related history or trivia to your page. And honestly, it's the only reason I still have a Facebook account because otherwise I wouldn't even be on there. But the stuff that you're pulling is just like, it's incredible. Um, and I, as a fellow track nerd, like really love it. Is this, is that something that, you know, obviously has stuck with you through the years, but have you just been like constantly gathering string, I would call it, if to use a reporter term, uh, that you knew at some point, I'm going to somehow like push this out in some way. Yeah. You know, um, I, I, I didn't know at the time, but, uh, uh that, that, that I would amass the, uh, the archives that I have, uh, uh, you know, you, like you don't set out, uh, from the very beginning to run a hundred thousand miles. It just kind of happens to you, uh, collecting 4,000 pieces of, of, uh, history of the sport over the, the years now coming up on 51 years of, since I started that collection. Uh, so I've got good material to work with. And I found that, um, the, the, you know, in recent years, you know, there's not an awful lot, uh, spoken about the history. It's just up to what you can grab on the internet. And other than that, there's, there's just not a resource for it. And, you know, and I'm, uh, I just, I'm self-appointed, you know, uh, cultural storyteller, 
uh, of the sport. Um, you know, cultures often have a storytelling component to them. Ethnicities, nationalities have a storytelling component to be able to pass that history down. And uh, so, and it's not being passed down. And, I, you know, it's not necessarily just available to, to find. Um, I happen to uh, have built, you know, substantial archives, pretty much the history of the sport, particularly the United States, from the 20s through the early 80s. And uh, there's so many cool backstories, and I love telling the backstories. They're inspirational. Uh, and, and so, yeah, um, that's, yeah. I'm sure you've been asked this, but have you ever thought of writing a book? Yeah, I, I, I desperately want to write a book. Uh, writing is, is the thing that I like more than anything. And then, frankly, that's got a lot to do with why I write, some, I, I post something every day about the sport. First of all, I have to find some material and then I have to execute, I have to actually pen sentences. And so the discipline associated with that uh, is you know, one of those skill sets that one has to foster in order to be able to um, groom themselves as a writer. And so that's the process that I'm in right now. Uh, again, as I conclude my, this uh, phase of my professional career, um, ex- expect to, to uh, have something written that's a, a greater substance than what I've written to date. How much fun is it for you to go into the garage every day and find something to write about? It's an adventure. <laughs> it's an adventure. Uh, yeah, and you know, uh, and, and something, what, what happens a lot is I'm looking for X and I find Y and I just kind of go down that rabbit hole and it's like, wow, I didn't know that, you know? And, and, and I'm, I'm sure then most of the time if I didn't know, well, guess what? <laughs> None of my friends probably knew it either. And so uh, I have a whole lot of fun with it. And what, what I really enjoy also is the banter of, uh, you know, we, we've created a community of sorts. And it's a lot of the guys that were actually the players in those behind the scenes stories, you know, and getting, you know, that's again, part of the cultural storytelling. And so um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful and honored to be in, uh, in that the space and place to be able to offer that to the running and track and field community. Even though you're posting that on your Facebook page, what I love about it and what I love about your approach in general is just how analog it is. You still have a handwritten training log all these years later. You have to literally go into your garage and dig this stuff up before you can write and post about it on the internet, ironically enough. I just like, I, I have such an appreciation for that because I think it's a lost art, not just in terms of running and track and field history, but just in general because we're so tied to our devices these days. Uh, old school, man. You know, I, uh, I do have a stopwatch. This is it. It's not a fancy stopwatch. It's a $29 <laughs> Timex stopwatch. It does two things. It 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 records the my interval times, and I, and I I had a nice interval session this morning. Thanks for asking. Uh, and <laughs> and uh, it tells me what time of day it is, so I can make my next meeting. And that's all I need, man. You know, there's I don't need any no other gadgetry. I'm totally anti gadgetry type of thing. I, the thing I like about running, one of the many things I like about running, is its simplicity. It's simplicity. Yeah, less is more. I know you have to leave for that meeting in just a few minutes. Here, last question for you. What is it about the sport today that excites you? It's an Olympic year, my man. It's 2020. I live for Olympic years, you know. The Olympic track and field trials coming up. I've got a little countdown going as to the X number of days until the trials. 
Can't wait for that. The games, uh, the world's next year. I'm just, you know, I've already got my deposit in for the 2024 Olympics. I'm always looking forward to uh, seeing the next greatest uh, athletes perform at their, uh, their highest levels. Well, this was a super fun conversation for me. Hopefully we can sit down without any time restrictions at some point and just go for several hours and talk track. But thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shake yeah, Up podcast. Yeah, hope you'll join me for a track workout sometime soon. Will do. All right, cool. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to our sponsors for this episode, New Balance and Final Surge. I've been running in the New Balance Fresh Foam 1080 V10 for the past several weeks, and it's quickly become one of the workhorses in my shoe stable. The booty upper and ultra heel design helps it fit like a glove, and the new Fresh Foam X midsole provides the right blend of cushioning and responsiveness to make my daily miles and long runs comfortable and enjoyable. This shoe provides plenty of protection without feeling bulky or compromising on flexibility and performance. You can learn more about it at newbalance.com or at the link in this episode's show notes. Final Surge is the platform I use to run the coaching side of my business as well as plan my own training, and I really can't say how much of a game changer it's been for me and my athletes. The coaching tools have made planning and delivering training easy and seamless, communication is completely streamlined into one easy-to-navigate portal, and it's made my workflow far more efficient and effective. Go to finalsurge.com slash morningshakeout to purchase a training plan written by yours truly to find more information about coaching packages or to check out a 14-day coaching trial. A big shout out, as always, to my man John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show, and he makes every episode sound clear and amazing. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas for handling sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys play key roles in helping keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Podcast.